The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. take a seat after that. Uh, I asked him to do that because that's the theme of Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. Every time I hear that song, I feel like I'm back in high school and I start doing this the whole time. (laughs) Kind of get the hair moved out of the way. They they said, are you sure you want to do that? I said, hey, it's my job on the line, not yours, so we'll go for it. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6, that's the theme song, that Solomon could have been a poster boy for the Rolling Stones. I mean, he could have been a poster boy. This is exactly what Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 is all about. It's a message I've entitled, Stuff. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. There it is right there. I can't get no satisfaction. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. And this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, so he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils under the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Father, we want to be satisfied. We need to understand the source of that satisfaction. And so we pray as we look at the Word today, that you would teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't get no satisfaction. Remember where you were when you heard that for the first time? Some of you don't want to remember that. Perspective. Perspective is an interesting thing when it comes to our stuff and when it comes to our possessions. I, I, I mean, it's interesting to look at the perspective that we have in our culture. By the way, if you're visiting, we're working through the book of Ecclesiastes together. And uh, some of you say, man, another church that preaches on money all the time. Absolutely not. But if it's in the Word of God, we don't apologize for it. And so we're going to look at our stuff today. We're going to look at our money. We're going to look at everything God has given us. 
Perspective is interesting when it comes to our stuff, when it comes to our money, when it comes to our possessions. One day, the father of a wealthy family took his son on a trip to the country with the purpose of showing him how poor people can be. They spent a day and a night on a farm of a very poor family. When they got back from their trip, the father asked his son, how was it? It was very good, Dad. Did you see how poor people can be? Yes, I did. What did you learn? He said, well, I saw that we have one dog, and they have four dogs. They have cows, chickens, goats, and a horse. We have a pool that reaches to the middle of the garden. They have a creek that has no end. Thanks, Dad, for showing me how poor we really are. (laughs) Matter of perspective, isn't it? It's a matter of perspective. When we think about wealth and all it can have, sometimes we think many of us believe we're a lottery ticket away from happiness. Or we think I'll have status when I can move into this neighborhood or when I can drive this kind of car or when I can go on vacation at this place. Then I will have arrived. I will have significance. I will have status. I will be successful. And when we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the song that you just heard and almost all of you knew was, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try. That's our culture. That's our world today. Looking for satisfaction but not able to find it. Looking everywhere and not able to find it. We've been duped into believing that we can find permanent joy in temporal things. And Solomon says the result of that is emptiness. Solomon says the reality of it is when you're on a quest for satisfaction and happiness, if you think you're going to find it in stuff, you're looking in all the wrong places. It's easy for us to put our trust in the wrong things. In an affluent culture, we often find our significance, our security, our status, and our stuff, and our bank account, and our retirement account, or whatever it might be. Solomon had lots of stuff. He had lots of stuff. In fact, in chapter 2, we saw, I think it was Stephen or Chase that preached that week, we saw that he had built palaces, he had built parkways, he had numerous things, he owned everything. He said, if my eyes saw it and I wanted it, I took it. Solomon had everything that the world around him had to offer. He was living the dream, so to speak, in the American vernacular. He had it all. And his conclusion was, vanity of vanity, it's all vanity. So Gary, you're saying there's no advantage to having wealth? Is Solomon saying there's really no advantage to having wealth? Well, there's some advantages. I mean, there's some advantages. Some of you have heard this story before. Someone sent it to me a few years ago. One of the advantages of having wealth is this. Two men crashed in, on a private, uh, in a private plane on a deserted South Pacific island. They both survived. One of them brushed himself off and proceeded to run all around the island to see if they had any chance of survival. And he ran all around the island, and he could find no food source, no water source, and he ran back to the plane wreckage where the first guy was just sitting there with his arm folded on the sand like he's getting a suntan. And he said, what are you doing, man? We're going to die. There's no food. There's no water. We're on an uninhabited island. We're going to die. The other man was unruffled, and he responded, no, we're not. I make $250,000 a week. We're not going to die. Mistified, he said, uh, taken aback, he said, we're doomed. There's no one else on the island. There's no food. There's no water. We're going to die a slow death. Still unfazed, the guy said, I make $250,000 a week. I tithe. My pastor will find us. (laughs) Some advantages to wealth, as I said. 
But here's what Solomon says about our wealth. He says, here's what happens. He gives us three woes of wealth. And by the way, when we're speaking of wealthy people, I would say we're speaking of everyone here. Remember the Old Testament definition of a rich man? Food for the day at the start of the day and a change of clothes. Food for the day at the start of the day and a change of clothes. It comes out of Deuteronomy, I think, 19. So, so if you have food for the day at the start of today, and if you have a change of clothes, you're a wealthy person by Old Testament definition. So Solomon says, uh, here's the woes of wealth. First of all, it does not bring satisfaction. Wealth does not bring satisfaction. I I sure wouldn't mind trying to be satisfied with a little more. I wouldn't wouldn't mind trying to be satisfied with uh, more than I have. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied because he always wants a little more. He who has abundance will not be satisfied with his income because he always wants a little more. Solomon says, this too is emptiness, vanity. You see, in in verse 10, what Solomon is saying is, wealth does not bring satisfaction. Money is not evil, it's the love of money that's sinful. Paul himself wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Look at the result of having plenty of money, according to Paul, or loving money, according to Paul. If you love money, it, it can create all kinds of evil. And he said, I've seen some people so eager for money, two things have happened. One, they've wandered from the faith, they've compromised who they are and what their belief is. And then secondly, they are pierced through with many griefs. Those griefs can come from any number of ways. Paul doesn't say what it is in 1 Timothy 6, but we know a person who chases after money is willing to do many things to get that money. And oftentimes his life or her life is filled with grief. What Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes 5.10 is you will never be satisfied if you make money your God. If all you want is more and more and more and more. Some folks treat money as though it were God. They love it. They love it. They love money. They make sacrifices for money. They are willing to compromise for money. We fill our minds with thoughts of money. We run to our computer whenever we can to check on our portfolio to see if it's time to trade, to buy, to hold. Our thoughts are filled with money. We are willing to lose relationships over money. How many families have you seen that have been torn asunder over stuff? Mom and dad die, they go to settle the estate, and you see brothers and sisters squabbling, and you see families torn asunder over stuff. And you see the problem of wealth. People are willing to do the unthinkable. They are willing to rob. They are willing to steal. They are willing to cheat for money, for stuff. And Solomon says in verse 10, he who loves money will never be satisfied with it. We allow ourselves to be controlled by getting it and then by guarding it. You see people who guard their money, who hoard their money. The greatest hoarder in American history is a lady named Hetty Green. This is what she looked like, poor thing. Hetty Green, if you Google her up, you can do it now or later. Some of you are going to do it no matter what, so give you permission. She was known as Hetty the Hoarder. She was also known as the Witch of Wall Street. 
She inherited a fortune from her mother's side of the family. Her dad made a considerable amount of income, too. And uh, she took that money and parlayed it into a fortune. She was the richest woman of the Gilded Age in America. But she was a hoarder. She loved her money. She loved her money so much that she ate cold oatmeal every morning for breakfast so she wouldn't have to pay for the electricity to heat it up. Her son, her only son, fell, broke a leg. She insisted that he get free medical care. She wouldn't pay for him to go see a physician. Gangrene set in. He had his leg amputated. This was in 1914. At that time, her estate was estimated at $95 million and wouldn't pay to have her son's leg set by a physician. $95 million in the 19-teens. She was a miser. Some of you are misers. Some of you are married to misers. Don't raise your hand. Like the lady who said, I wish you had this to tell their husband, I wish you had the had same spunk the government had. They don't let being in debt keep them from spending. The person who loves money will never be satisfied. No matter how much is in your portfolio, no matter how much you have, look at the end of verse 10. He who loves abundance will never be satisfied. You're going to want more and more and more. Some of you thinking, all I ask is a chance to prove that money can't make me happy. Hey, we've got more than any culture in the history of the world. One author says this, if happiness can be found in having material things and in being able to indulge in these things that that you consider pleasurable, we should be a deliriously happy people. Instead, we would be telling one another frequently of our unparalleled bliss rather than trading tranquilizer prescriptions. You see, in the midst of being the most successful nation in the history of the world, having the greatest income of any nation per capita in the history of the world, we find ourselves singing, I can't get no satisfaction. Because when we are trying to find significance and status in who we are and the stuff we have, we always come up empty. If you haven't been with us, what I've said about the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like walking through a dark, dark, dark tunnel, and every once in a while there's a shaft of light. Most of this is darkness. Solomon is saying, if you're going to continually chase after the worm, if you're going to continually look and find significance and stuff, you're going to find that you're going to end up empty. Empty. He goes on. And he says, a second row of wealth is it doesn't bring you peace of mind. Look at verses 11 and 12. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. You start building your business, and you have to hire more people, and you have to keep feeding the monkey. More and more and more and more. You make more, you spend more, you hire more, you produce more, and you get more. He's saying it's a cycle that doesn't stop. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. The more your business increases, the more people you have to hire, the more you have to feed the monkey to keep producing, and wealth does not bring you peace of mind. 
You're wondering if you can make payroll. You're trying to secure the next job. You're trying to sell the next job. And, and you continually have this business on your mind. And he says, we worry about maintaining it. We worry about building it. We're afraid somebody else is going to take it. Some competitors are going to move in. And we're not going to have our share of the market or as much as we have. And so we struggle. Wealth does not bring peace of mind. We have all this stuff, but there's no peace of mind. There's no, we worry about it. We worry what's going to happen to the nice stuff. When I was a kid, my uh, grandparents on my dad's side, they lived in a shotgun house in New Orleans. They were poor Italian migrants who uh, my grandpa worked in a, in a factory, but well, actually both grandparents worked in a factory, and, and so they lived in a shotgun house. You know what a shotgun house is? Shotgun house is room after room after room, fire shotgun and goes straight through it. So they're in a shotgun house in New Orleans, four rooms. Living room, uh, my dad and his sister's bedroom, my grandparents' bedroom, kitchen. And the kitchen was also the dining room table, and, and then we put a TV in there so you could eat, and then you could, uh, you could do fiesta, and then siesta, kind of the Italian style. So we did that. But in the living room, we were never allowed to go in there. In fact, uh, what they had was a very nice couch, and that couch was covered in plastic. And so you could never go, and they had a real nice rocking chair of some kind, and it was covered in plastic. It was for special people. I guess special people never came because the plastic never came off of it. But, but, but the reality was they, that, that was the nicest stuff my grandparents had. And so even though they were poor factory workers, they wanted to keep their stuff nice. I'll never forget, Bev had an uncle, and uh, Uncle Leo was very generous to us, and uh, he and Bev had a very close relationship, and so he, 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 we went to see him in Baton Rouge when he was still alive on one occasion, and he brought out this chest full of uh, silver, what do you call it, forks and knives, what do you call it? Sterling, Sterling silver forks and knives. <laughs> Versus whatever kind of forks and knives you have, but... I was reminded, I mean, he says, Solomon says, it's a grievous thing. You have all this stuff, but, 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 but you worry about it. You don't sleep. There's no advantage to it. And Uncle Leo came to Bev and he said, I want you and Gary to have this. He called it Bev's maiden name was Huff. These are the crown jewels of the Huff family. Wow. Uncle Leo, did you ever use them? Nope. In fact, I'd encourage you not to lose them because your friends might come over and they see it and they like it. They might stick a fork in their pocket and (laughs) told us that. What advantage is it? What advantage? Stuff. You want a fork from our house? Come and get it. I'll break your hands on... No. (laughs) Do we ever use it? We ever use that stuff? We use it sometimes, yeah. We, we, We bring the crown jewels out on special occasions. Stuff. Stuff. Well, I'm very appreciative of that, but Solomon says this stuff does not bring you peace of mind. In fact, look at what he says in verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. You see the guy that's a laborer, the guy that's out there working, and some of you guys work construction, and, and you work hard, and you work physical, and I watch the guys in our neighborhood. They're building new houses in our neighborhood, and, and those guys, I mean, they're, they're throwing, you know, not bricks, but uh, rock up to one another on these scaffolds, and they, they work out their framing. Those guys don't have to have membership at Gym Max, I'm going to tell you that. 
And nobody's got to rock them to sleep at night. I mean, they are dead tired when they get home. And he says they put their head in the pillow and they're gone. They don't think about meeting payroll. They don't think about all the other things that have to happen when you have a business. He says the laborer, he puts his head in the pillow and he's gone. My dad worked in a shipyard, steel toes, hard hat. Dad would come home, he'd go to work at, uh, I think he had to be there at 6.30 in the morning, get home at 4.30 in the afternoon, and when he took the hard hat off and the steel toes off, he could care less what was happening in the shipyard. He clocked in, he clocked out, and he was done. He wasn't worried about whether the second ship was doing their job or not. He was not concerned about meeting payroll at the shipyard. He was a laborer. And, and, and Solomon says, a laborer, he goes to work, he comes home, he puts his head on the pillow, and he's knocked out. Then he contrasts that, look at verse 12. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. You see, the guy that owns that business, the, the guy that's in charge of that, he, he's worried about finding the next job and selling the next job, and so he takes clients out to dinner, and, and, and when, when he lies down, his belly is so bloated from that nice meal he had that day that his eyes are wide open. You ever been there? Me, I'm the only one. I've got my hand up. You ever been there? You go out to this nice dinner and you're saying, I'm not going to eat it all. And you come to the end of the day and you say, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. And you go there and pop some antacid or whatever else because you went to this real nice restaurant to impress everybody, to make a sale, to, you know, recruit somebody or get a client or to sell a deal. And all of a sudden you're sitting there and your mind is going over and over. Can I keep feeding this monkey? And what did I just eat? And my belly and Solomon says, there's no peace of mind. No peace of mind. You're filled with anxiety. Can't sleep at night. Somebody told me the best cure for insomnia is to get a lot of sleep. Some of you will get that at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Money cannot buy happiness. But some would say it brings you a more pleasant form of misery, doesn't it? And Solomon says, I want you to know it doesn't bring you satisfaction. It doesn't bring you peace of mind. It doesn't bring you security. Really? It doesn't bring you security? How many of you find a little security in your checkbook? How many of you find a little security in that uh, nest egg you have? Get a little security in what's happening. Then the stock market goes down a couple of hundred points, you get a little nervous. Goes down a couple of hundred more points, you get a little nervous. Things aren't going quite so well at work, and you get a little nervous. Or maybe you're a sales commission guy, and all of a sudden sales start slowing down, you get a little nervous. You see, where's the security? Solomon puts it this way. Look at verse 13. There's a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. So the first problem is a guy who has a lot of stuff, but he hoards that stuff. Who's hurt by it? Well, obviously relationships are hurt. So he's got a lot of stuff. He keeps it to himself. He's not generous. He doesn't share with others, and other people are hurt because of it. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a son, maybe it's a daughter, maybe it's other people, but he says he hoards it and he hurts other people because his stuff is more important to him than caring about other people. Secondly, verse 14, 
When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, there was nothing to support him with, and he had come naked from his mother's womb, and so he shall return naked to that same womb. Wealth does not bring security because it can be hoarded and relationships can be broken, and you begin to struggle with it. Tell about a miser. Tell about a miser, somebody who hoards it. You know, God's got a great sense of humor. Sometimes uh, it's amazing when, you, when people get married. You seem like you've got so much in common. Then about six months later, you realize we've got some issues here. But we're not exactly the same. And in the area of money, that typically happens. What happens is God often puts a spender with a saver. That's God's sense of humor. I mean, it's God's sense of humor. But one person thinks, you know, we're going to save and save and save. We're going to start in our 20s so we can retire and have a big nest egg one day. And the other person over here is saying, well, God's given us his money. We're going to use it and we're going to buy and we're going to buy and we're going to buy. And so you've got this clash of the two. How many of you are in a marriage where one's a spender and one's a saver? Let me see your hand. Raise them high. God bless the rest of you. Y'all are perfect couples out there. Look at y'all. A bunch of liars is what you are. I mean, here's the reality. We end up in this, and it's a struggle. There was a woman who was married to a man who was the worst miser you've ever seen. In fact, he wouldn't let his family buy stuff. He wouldn't let his wife have anything. And just before he died, he said to his wife, when I die, I want you to take all my money, put it in the casket with me. I want to have all my money in the afterlife in case I need it. So he got his wife to make that promise, and so she did. She said she would put all his money in the casket. When he died, he... uh, was stretched out in the casket, and at the end of the ceremony, before the undertakers closed the casket top, she said, wait a minute, and she ran up there, and she put a box into the casket. The undertaker locked it, and her best friend knew about the deal, and uh, best friend ran to her, girl, I cannot believe you did that. You put all that money that your husband had in there? Yep. I promised him I would. I won't go back in my word. I never have. I told him I was going to give him all his money, so I gave it to him. You put all that money in the casket? Yep, I wrote him a check. (laughs) The moral of that story is don't be a miserly husband. That's the moral of that story. Amen, ladies, amen. He he says you you can hoard it and hurt relationships. You can lose it. You know what what, uh, Mike Tyson, Alan Iverson, Kurt Schilling, and Vince Young have in common? All bankrupt. All bankrupt. All of them made over $200 million. No, I'm sorry, over $100 million, Over $100 million. Each of those men made over $100 million. They're all bankrupt. You Google up professional athletes gone bankrupt. They'll give you a list of 25 top losers. It's amazing. A bunch of you are Vince Young fans, Longhorns. He's an idiot. His Heisman and all. He's an idiot. I mean, he is. Kurt Schilling put all of his money in one investment. Boom, gone. Gone. Allen Iverson, he looks like an idiot. I mean, you remember him? I mean, he was a walking billboard for tattoos. And, 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 and I mean, he was, a, he was a fool in what he did with his money. And, and, and Mike Tyson, he's the worst out of all. He's the king of the idiots. He made over $500 million. You look it up. Google up. Athletes gone broke. Tyson made over $500 million. You remember one of his biggest investments? White Bengal tigers. Who needs two stinking tigers? 
I mean, he had two tigers. I mean, he, he did. Anyway, I go off on all those guys. They're nuts. Seventy percent of NBA basketball players are in financial strait or bankruptcy within three years after their retirement. And these are not guys that make $12 an hour. Minimum wage is like $750,000 a year. Seventy percent within three years are in financial straits or bankruptcy. All online. You can read it. I believe everything I read online, so it's got to be true. <laughs> then he says it can't be taken with you. Naked you came from your mother's womb, you're going to return the same way. It was, uh, it was Rockefeller's accountant who was asked how much did he leave. What was his answer? Everything. Everything. Didn't take anything with him. You never see a hearse beyond a U-Haul or a U-Haul behind a hearse. Doesn't happen. You leave this world, you came in the world with nothing, and you're going to leave with the same thing. That's it. Solomon says you're an idiot if you think stuff is going to satisfy you. God had warned the nation of Israel about this. In Deuteronomy, he says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commandments, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build really nice houses and settle down, when you have flocks and herds, you've got ranches, and then you've got a lot of silver and gold and mutual funds and bonds, and all this is multiplied. When you've got everything you need, you've got a new pickup, you've got a ranch, you've got second and third houses, you've got more cattle than you need, you've got a portfolio that will trump anybody. He says at that point in time, your heart will be proud and you're going to forget the Lord your God going to happen. It's going to happen. I've got a friend who's very wealthy. I said, what's the most difficult thing about being wealthy? He said, remembering that I didn't do this by myself. Giving God the glory. I look around this congregation, man, there's a lot of wealth here. A lot of wealth. There are a lot of us living paycheck to paycheck. There are others of us. Man, when I, you know, in the end, everything's going to be burned up. There's some of us, we're going to have piles that are burned really high. Because you ain't taking nothing with you. But we live our lives consumed with our stuff. Three cars aren't enough, we get a fourth. Two tractors aren't enough, we get a third. Hundred head of cattle is not enough, we'll get some more. What is it? Why? What are you trying to prove? What are you trying what void are you trying to fill? Solomon says, I see three futilities and riches. This is chapter six. First of all, riches without enjoyment. He says in verse 1, there's an evil which I've seen under the sun that's prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so his soul lacks nothing. This guy has everything he wants, nothing, nothing he wants, nothing he desires, he doesn't have, but God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. He says this guy has everything you can imagine, but he's not able to enjoy God's gifts because somebody comes in and takes them away. Done. Then he goes on and he says, uh, I see another guy, he labors without satisfaction. Look at verse 7 of chapter 6. All of a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or a little money, you work so you can eat. You work to provide for your family. 
And, and you know, it's interesting. You know, the, the more you have, the, the way it's interesting how your taste change. When, you, when you're young, you work to eat. And so you're happy you can take your family to McDonald's. I'll never forget when we, when we were first here at Temple TBC, church of about 40 folks, we didn't make much money, that there was a restaurant called Casa de Castillo. Do you remember that? It's where H-E-B now is. It's kind of close to where Jason's Deli is in that same area to the left of Jason's Deli. And we could go in there and we could, or we could, uh, we tell our kids, fill up on chips and salsa. And then, then we would order a, uh, order of fajita nachos, and at that time I think it was $5.99, and then they had flour tortillas and honey, so we, we had, uh, an appetizer, chips and salsa, main meal, we could split fajita nachos, dessert would be, uh, flour tortillas with honey, and we could walk out with a tip for under 10 bucks and feed a family of four. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty amazing. We were cheap. We didn't have any money. And then, then we made a little more money, and we were able to do things, and so we'd go to Chili's when it came to town, or Olive Garden, and that was really nice. Now, our kids, there's one rule in our family. You eat out with us, you don't order anything to drink except water. It's a rule in our family. I'm not going to pay a buck fifty for a soda or a glass of tea. And so our kids get married. I'll never forget the first time Bill, our son-in-law, ordered tea in a restaurant. Everybody looked at him. <laughs> And I said, it's okay, you're buying, it's okay. You want that, you're paying for it. I'll buy your meal, I'm not paying a buck fifty for a glass of tea. It's not going to happen. And so now, now, you know, I, honestly, I'd rather go to Eddie V's and True Lux and to Three Forks and to Ruth Chris's, wouldn't you? I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Don't act dumb. I mean, I'd much rather go to Papa Do's than go to Razoo's. And he's saying, you know, it doesn't matter. You work to eat. And the more you have, the more you want. The nicer it is, the more you want of that. And then finally he says, another futility of riches, you have power without control. God is a sovereign God. He's in control of it all. Whoever exists or whatever exists has ever been named, you think you're in control. You have absolutely no control. You have all this money. You have all this stuff. You don't control any of it. He does. What's this section talking about? Well, if you notice, I skipped three verses at the end of chapter 5. I think there's a moment of light. I I think the shaft in this dark tunnel comes through for a second. Look at verse 18. Here's what I've seen, Solomon says, to be good and fitting, to eat, drink, and enjoy oneself and one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive this reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Four times in three verses, Solomon finally mentions God. Everything has been under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. And then he goes over the sun and he says for a second, here's what I want you to know. You are to enjoy the thing that God has given you, but don't bank on physical things to fill spiritual voids. Don't do that. There's a misprint in your bulletin that says don't back on physical things. You should say don't bank on physical things. That's my mistake in the bulletin. And that's the problem right there. Most of us bank on physical things to bring us permanent joy and to fill voids, and it doesn't work. 
Let me finish with two questions and a story. Question number one, based on these verses, 15, 16, and 17, are you grateful for everything God has given you? Are you grateful? You see, I find a lot of folks are always wanting more, 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 and more, and they never stop to thank God and to be grateful for everything that God has given them. They don't stop to do it. Are you grateful for everything that God has given you? Are you enjoying everything God has given you? Are you grateful? The story told of a Puritan who had lean times. His corn had got eaten up or, or burned up and his other crops had failed and so he sat down to a low bread and some water. So he bowed his head to pray. He said, all this and Jesus too. Would you be grateful with that? <laughs> Would you? Are you grateful for what God has given you? Secondly, second question. Are you generous with what God has given you? Are you generous with what God has given you? Generosity is the best antidote to materialism. Giving breaks the hole that possessions have over our lives. We're studying the book of James on uh, Thursday mornings, and uh, this week we happen to be on money as well. And I told the guys, I said, not one of us should be ashamed if I said, hey, we're going to start scanning in your checkbook register and popping up on Sunday morning so everybody see it. You shouldn't have anything to be ashamed of. You, you should say, to God be the glory because he's given me so much, now I can give to others. But here's the reality. If I told you starting next week we're going to start popping up your checkbook, scanning in and popping it up, about half of you would disappear. You'd be gone. Because the reality of it is, before God, you'd be ashamed. Because you're not generous. You've got a Savior who's given everything he has for you, and you're not generous with him. And you're saying, well, you know, I've got a bunch of mouths to feed. I've got kids in school. They're headed to college. I've got daughters getting married. I've got... Are you generous with God? That's my question. By God's grace, TBC speaks from a position of strength. We're provided for. But you are missing a tremendous blessing before God if you're not generous with what he's given you. Two questions. Are you grateful and are you generous? One story. Some of you have heard this story before. It's been a number of years since I used it. Story of a dad who took his two sons to Burger King for lunch. He said, it was a Saturday. I was doing the dad thing. My wife was off shopping. So I took my boys to Burger King. One was eight. One was two. We enjoyed the simple fare that was before us. And my son... Colin, who's eight, made uh, put new meaning in the term fast food. He devoured his, seemingly, before we sat down. I finished mine, and we were waiting for our two-year-old, Nathaniel, to finish up. Without even thinking, I reached over to, he was sitting on a booster seat, and I reached out to the French fries that were in front of him, and I took one French fry, and I was getting ready to put it in my mouth. I was halfway up, and he screamed out loudly before everybody in the restaurant, Mine! I looked at him, 
I looked at the french fry. I looked at him. And I began to think, what should I do? He took a small bag of french fries that was there and he, he cuddled them next to him so that uh, I could not get another one. I stood there, I sat there rather in silence. The cold french fry hanging in suspended animation wondering what to do. Do I eat it? Do I put it back so as not to unsettle him any further? So I ate it. He watched me with an accusing eye for the longest time. <laughs> Almost instinctively, four thoughts flashed into my mind. I, I, I didn't say anything, but I thought, number one, how can you be so ungrateful? Where do you think those french fries came from? Don't you understand the source of these things? I'm the one who bought them. I carried them over here. I tore, tore open the silly ends of the ketchup package so you could dip, dip, uh, dip them in ketchup. How dare you behave this way? Don't you realize I'm the one that gave you those french fries in the first place? Second thought came in my mind. Don't you realize if I wanted to, I could take all of them away from you in a heartbeat? You're a two-year-old kid and I'm a 34-year-old man. I could just wrestle those things away from you before you could say anything. Then another thought went through my mind. I could also bury you in French fries. I could walk up to the counter and order 50 bags of French fries. And I could just pour them over you and bury you in french fries, you little ungrateful kid. <laughs> Thirdly, I thought this, you know, son, if you really love me, if you really love me, what is one french fry? Is that asking too much? Just one little lousy french fry when I've given you? So much? How can you begrudge me so little? Then I was walking out of the restaurant and the fourth thought came to my mind. It's as though the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Hey, Alan, how's it feel? How's it feel? The Father whispered into my ear. How's it feel? Father, help us not to try and fill spiritual voids with physical things. Not to base who we are upon what we have. But Father, help us to enjoy the things you've given us with gratitude and generosity. In a room this size, there are a lot of people trying to fill emptiness, voids, with stuff. Trying to build a better mousetrap, trying to build a bigger house, trying to buy a newer car. Or maybe you've turned to things of the world to, spill, to fill those voids. Maybe you've turned to drugs, alcohol. You can't get enough sex. I don't know what it is. But there's a deep void in your life you're trying to fill with stuff. And it's not working. It's just not working. This morning I offer to you Jesus. Jesus who came and gave so generously that he who knew no sin 
generously became sin so you could be made in the righteousness of Christ. A Savior who went to the cross on your behalf. So if you're trying to fill emptiness and voids with stuff, I offer you Jesus this morning. Would you accept him? Would you ask him for the forgiveness of your sins? And for some of us, we haven't been grateful for what God's given us. We've not been grateful. Our hearts want more and more and more and more. And we haven't even said thanks. And for some of us, we're not very generous. Make a ton of money and throw a couple of hundred bucks in the plate every month. And we think somehow God's satisfied with us. Would you ask God to change your heart? To make you generous to a fault? You'll never outgive God. So, Father, this day, this day, we thank you for all you've given us. And we pray that we'd be generous just as our Savior was. In whose name we pray. Amen.